Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm joined today by Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade, who is a professor at the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University. He's written a book called Equality or Equity. We're going to be talking about that in a bit. Before we get to any of that, Jeff, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your book is a really powerful read. It's something that I'm still thinking about. It is fresh in my mind. I was just powering through it. We're going to be talking about some of the history that I didn't really understand and some thinkers and some frameworks that I hadn't really heard before. We'll get into that next. But before we do that, we always start with our guest's origin story. Can you catch our listeners up on who you are and how you got to this point in your professional life? Sure. I am the youngest of seven kids, the son of Ada Graciela and William Jackson. I'm the father of twin boys that are 10 years old, Amaru and Tayari. And, you know, I'm a product of public schools and, you know, experienced growing up firsthand what it's like to be in a school that really doesn't have designs on you becoming who I became. And that experience, you know, never left me as I, as I moved forward with my life and one research project that I did studying really effective teachers in Los Angeles when I was doing a postdoc at UCLA, an interview I did with one of those teachers I was studying probably best captures why I became a teacher. And, you know, I was asking him really phenomenal teacher. His name's Patrick Kamenyan. He's a professor now at University of San Francisco. And I, and I said, why, why did you become a teacher? And he said the words that I had never quite put together to, to answer that question for myself, which was, he said, I wanted to be the teacher I never had. Mm. And so, you know, I started teaching full-time at a West Oakland middle school in California when I was 20 years old and just, you know, never left. This is my 30th year working with young people in Oakland. And, you know, so much of what I write in that book with my other, you know, articles and books really straddle four lanes. You know, one lane is my identity as someone who grew up in community. And so as a community member, as a father, as an intellectual and academic, a researcher, and then as a practitioner. And I think that people compartmentalize those lanes. And for me, I never have. When I'm in community, I am, you know, an intellectual and I am doing research and I am a father and I am a teacher. So, so much of this book reflects, right, all of those lanes and yeah. the ways in which those lines are very blurred for me. And so, yeah, that's how I end up here, you know, in this conversation is all of those experiences and my family and how I grew up have all really shaped the way in which I think about my responsibility with the level of access and, and the, the skills that creator gave me. It does connect to a couple of things from the book. One is the idea of proximity, where in many ways you're talking about making that impact proximal to where you grew up, like in the community, wearing those different hats, operating in those different lanes. And then the other piece is the challenges around the fact that a lot of people don't have the teacher that they could have had or that they wish they, they would have had. That's particularly true for, you know, children of color, for black students, especially, and, you know, black male teachers in particular are a place where there is a real shortage. I was surprised from the book 
how in many ways that does connect to Brown versus the Board of Ed, which, you know, at a surface level, as someone who didn't really major in history and go much deeper, my understanding of Brown versus the Board of Ed is much more positive in that it, quote unquote, ended segregation. But then going deeper, based on what I saw in your book, there was a lot more to that story. And one of the knock-on effects of Brown versus Board of Ed is really the exodus of a lot of Black educators from our public schools. Can you expand on that a little bit? That seemed like a pretty foundational insight from your book. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to say in the process of doing, I mean, of course, you know, I was familiar with Brown both as a, you know, a PhD in social and cultural studies and education and as a longtime educator. But the research I did for the book really illuminated a set of things that instinctually I thought, but to see both some of the legal scholarship criticizing Brown and the kind of broader analysis of Brown was, well, frankly, it was, it was kind of stunning to me. There's a lot of myth-making that goes on around, both around racial desegregation in this country and desegregation in schools. And so, you know, if you look at the work of Gary Orfield at the UCLA Civil Rights Project, formerly of the Harvard Civil Rights Project, his research team examines every 10 years, right? They do an examination on how much progress we've made on the promise of Brown to racially desegregate schools. And, you know, we're coming up on the 70th anniversary of Brown, but in, in their last report, you know, what they, what their research revealed was that, that city schools are more racially segregated now, six decades after the Supreme Court said that's illegal, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's the highest policy group in the land, right? It is saying you cannot have racially segregated schools. And six decades later, schools are more racially segregated than they were before. And, you know, one of my big homies and one of the, you know, most prominent voices in our field, Gloria Ladson Billings, you know, often reminds me that, and the group that is the most racially segregated is white people. So even the conversation about racial segregation is misguided because we're not talking about how racial segregation negatively impacts the white community, their sense and sensibilities, their capacity to function at a high level in a pluralistic multiracial democracy is seriously reduced because as young people, they're growing up in a very racially isolated experience. Mm -hmm. And then that, of course, colors, you know, no pun intended, how they move forward as young adults and adults, et cetera. That fact alone is really troubling. But it's also why I started writing this book, because I was I kept getting pulled into all these conversations as equity became all the rage. Yeah. All these schools and districts and states and corporations, right? They started designing these equity strategic plans and they were going to like, you know, be all about equity. And so I, I kept getting called in as a thought partner and I would read these strategic plans and the frequency with which I saw the terms equality and equity used interchangeably, like as mm. if they're synonymous was really stunning to me. Yeah. And so I started, I started writing this book as a way to disentangle those two ideas Equality and equity, they are fundamentally different. I often say that equality is like Sesame Street. It's arithmetic. It's one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me, right? It's bean counting. Equity is calculus. This is not a soft pivot. 
you know, this would be a fundamental foundational shift to talk about equitable schools or an equitable society. Mm -hmm. And so when I started really trying to understand those differences, you know, the other thing that was concerning me in these conversations I was having was that these places that were talking about moving towards equity, they didn't know why they were doing. Mm -hmm. They didn't know why an equal education system had produced the most radically unequal of any of the global democracies. Right. And so, you know, if you're going to make that kind of pivot, you have to be really lucid on why you're doing it and why what you were doing wasn't producing the results that you want. And I just didn't see that kind of like historical analysis about public schools generally and public schools post-Brown. That kind of was the impetus for digging in more to Brown. And the more I dug into Brown, the more it became really clear to me about why schools are so profoundly unequal and inequitable. And that Brown just, there wasn't, that the Supreme Court didn't actually have the desire like they didn't believe that the nation was actually ready to desegregate. Ergo, one of the most famous lines in the Brown decision, it's not actually in the Brown decision, it's in Brown 2. A lot of people don't know that Brown got re-legislated, right? Mm -hmm. So there's Brown v. Board 1 and Brown v. Board 2 because there was no progress post-Brown 1. And when the court revisited it to create Brown 2, that's where one of the most famous lines of the Brown decision emerges, which is with all deliberate speed. Right, that, that we would racially desegregate, quote unquote, with all deliberate speed. And so, you know, the takeaway for me there was that, well, apparently all deliberate speed in this nation means backwards first. Right. right? Or like whenever you feel like it. Or, right. So I think that the lack of teeth in Brown, right, to really insist that the nation grapples with its really toxic racial history. Right. resulted in a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of, you know, moving deck chairs around the Titanic, redistricting, like mm -hmm. rejiggering how we think about where kids have to go to school. And then the other thing that, you know, historians have been talking about, Seidel Walker, among others, they noted that pre-Brown, that there was a significant number of Black teachers and Black administrators. Yeah. Because schools were racially segregated. And if you were a black teacher or a black administrator, you weren't teaching in white schools. Right. right? And black children for, you know, extending the case, right. For Latino children too, for right, indigenous children, right. They were in schools and often taught by teachers and administrators from their community. Yeah. And then so post Brown, when we quote unquote integrate schools, it was a one way integration. Right. White kids were not coming to black schools. White right. kids were not coming to learn from black teachers or black administrators. Yeah. Because the presumption was that white schools were better. Right. And so if this isn't fair, we need to give black children and brown children access to whiteness. And I think that is the kind of the essence of a white supremacist framework. Right. It presumes that whiteness is the center. Whiteness is the ideal. And if we're really going to be fair, then everybody should get to act like they're white. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is that as black families and brown families start to 
try to gain access to these white schools, their teachers and their school leaders were not part of the project. Right. And so a lot of those teaching opportunities diminished and people that otherwise might have gone into teaching or gone into school administration started seeking other financial pathways because there just weren't going to be any teaching jobs for those folks. And so mm -hmm. that decimated the Black and Latino and Indigenous teacher and school leader community. Right. And we're still still that. And then that was something that really came through throughout the book. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, and you were touching on this too, is the fact that in Justice Warren's opinion, I'm not sure which version of Brown it was, he didn't specifically talk about the value of desegregation to white kids. Then you also are referencing Dr. Martin Luther King's critique of gradualism. You, you reference the idea of tinkering, where like there's a lot of special care made to not disturb too much of the status quo when allowing access to black and brown kids to the traditionally, quote unquote, better whiter schools. That to me was was really interesting in that that was almost 70 years ago. In some ways, that assessment of the tinkering and the gradualism is in some ways moving in the wrong direction, which kind of begs the question of what's the alternative? If you're not going to go gradual, if you're not going to do the tinkering, I mean, you outline stuff around, you know, relationships, relevance and responsibility and ways for educators to actually make a, an impact at an individual level with the students who feel like they aren't being reached or understood by the systems in which they operate. But is there also, you know, kind of a call to a more foundational shift? I, I certainly see a compelling case for why the current approach should probably be jettisoned. It really hasn't been working. We've been moving in the wrong direction. So I'd love to hear a little more about what a more foundational shift might look like. One of the points I make in, in the book is that, you know, I'm in schools all over the country all the time, and it is very common for me to hear leadership talking about wanting to be research-based and data-driven, which I think is fantastic. I absolutely sure. would like for us to be research-based and data-driven. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is really lift up some of the best research that we have, right, about what what works, not just for like the classroom, right, or the school, but what works for young people with a very particular focus on the most vulnerable and the most wounded ones. Mm -hmm. And to be more explicit, like to be very concrete about the fact that we should be designing schools that work for Black and Indigenous children. Because if it works for Black children and it works for Indigenous children, it's going to work for all children, right? If the most vulnerable children and the most wounded children are well, everybody's going to be well, right? Okay. And I think that we often end up in this zero-sum game debate, right? Well, if we give this to the kids we really haven't been giving things to, what's that going to mean for us? Aren't we going to lose out? It's this model of scarcity mm -hmm. instead of understanding that, that if you look Globally, the societies that are thriving, that are sustainable, that are well, they are focused on equity. PolicyLink put out this paper several years ago, and the title of the paper is 
equity is the superior growth model. What we have continued to sort of commit to in this country is apartheid, mm -hmm. right? And now if you look at the data, what it reveals is that our country, just looking at our public health data, we're in trouble. The, the CDC just released a study on U.S. teens. Didn't even disaggregate by race, right? One in three teenage girls in the United States is having suicidal ideations, mm -hmm. right? That is not sustainable. And that's just the kids that are reporting. Right. So you know the number's higher, right? How much more do we need, right? But the problem is that what's happening in schools is that we're not looking at that data, right? We're not looking at wellness data. We're not looking at how well our young people are for having spent 13 consecutive years, seven hours a day. But if you look at the wellness data for our young people, it is deeply troubling. If you expand your analysis of the data, young people spend more time in school than they do anywhere else. They spend more time in school than with their family. They spend more time in school than on YouTube or social media. They spend more time at school than at church. They spend more time in school than in the neighborhood. So school is the most dominant institution in the cultural development of our young people. And our young people in the aggregate are saying, we're not well. And so I wanna look at schools to say, why is that not the number one responsibility of a national public education system? To say to young people and to families, I'm gonna make you one promise. And here it is. And this is all I want as a dad, right? Like this is what, our school promises to families that when you come pick up your baby at the end of the day, they will be more well than when you drop them off, right? And as a 30-year professional educator, I can tell you that's impossible. Man. That is impossible to do with every child. And as yeah. a father, I don't actually expect you to be able to do that. I expect you to make the promise and then I expect you to own it when you miss. Mm. And I don't want to hear an apology. I want to hear atonement. That distinction for me is really important, both in how we treat families and in how we teach children, that what we teach in school is apology. So if you spend time in schools, right, and a kid harms another kid, and then we have all these programs, restorative justice, and right, all these things that are just programs, right? They're not actually foundational. They're pro forma. And so mm -hmm. the kids get together and the kids, know. we're going to sit around in a circle, right? And you're going to ask me how I feel. And then they're going to say how they feel. And then the adult needs to accelerate this mm -hmm. because we're on a clock here, right? We got to get back to the business of school. Right. And so the kid who does harm, right? Say, you know, do you want to apologize? Are you sorry? And of course the kid is like, yeah, I'm sorry. And then the other kid, like, you accept his apology, right? And that kid knows, yeah, it's cool. And they go back. And then that's the lesson, right? That if you do harm, and then this gets modeled all the way up to our, like, national leadership. Yeah. And instead, right, what we should be teaching in school is atonement, which includes apology. Sure. Right? You, you do acknowledge he did harm. But then the real thinking and the real growth is, how do I repair the harm? 
Mm. Right? But this nation has spent the greater part of its existence ducking, dodging, and denying the fact that we're the only we're the only democracy to have committed two genocides. Yeah. We don't teach those in schools. And so we then replicate that same process, right, with our young people. And you can't have a conversation about wellness unless that is part of the project and part of the commitment and unless the adults are modeling that for children. So when we started looking more deeply at data, and I talk about this in the book, what we realized with our school was that, you know, if you talk to any psychometrician, that they'll tell you that what schools measure, test scores, GPA, attendance, grades, those are all lag indicators of youth development. And you cannot transform practice or culture or climate with lag data. All it tells you is where the kid ended up on that metric. Right. What you need to know to transform practice and climate and culture, you need to know why they ended up there, which means you need process data. And schools don't have that, right? Yeah. What ends up happening in schools is they look at test scores and they guess. That's all they can do is mm -hmm. they guess. So they look at, okay, this class's you know, test scores on fractions are really low. So what do they do? They get the teacher like fraction training. Right. And of course, that doesn't have any significant impact over time because the problem wasn't the way the teacher was teaching fractions. In fact, the teacher taught fractions fine, but the teacher had poor relationships with the kids. Yeah. So they're teaching their ass off around fractions, but the kids aren't connecting because the teacher's not connecting. And we know in the lead indicator data about what it takes for kids to be well, that they need to feel cared about. They don't need to hear that their teacher says, I care about, mm -hmm. right? They need to actually feel that the teacher cares about them. Yeah. And we don't have any of that lead indicator data. And as we launched our school, our effort to actually shift the foundation of an entire institution of school to focus on the wellness of the children that went there. Yeah. What we realized was we needed to create our own data metrics, right? So a group of us, including one of my longtime colleagues at San Francisco State University, her name's Allison Titiangokubalas. I encourage your listeners to check out her work. We spent three years trying to meet that challenge and we designed the first of its kind youth wellness index as a way to begin to measure how well children are for having had access to this classroom and this school. And what I've argued to kind of put a bow on your question is that we need to repurpose public schools in this country with an intentional focus on that promise that young people are going to be more well for their time here when they leave than when they came in. And and in order to do that, like this makes a lot of sense to a lot of educators and a lot of schools. Like, yes, like, like who's against children being well? Like, right. But the way schools have been trying to move with this is they then add wellness onto an already overflowing plate. Right. 
right? And when you've got a plate, when you've got teacher's plates that are just completely overflowed, right? And you add something, that is always the first thing to fall off your plate. Push come to shove, things get a little rocky, wellness falls off, and we go back to ABC one, two, three. And so what I'm saying needs to happen in our national public education system at a very local level is that we need to clear the plate. Everything's off. I mean, everything. And then center of the plate is the purpose of this school is to make sure that these children are well. Mm -hmm. And then you bring in your literacy curriculum. What's a literacy curriculum focused on? The state test, the literacy curriculum is focused on the wellness of the children that go there. Right. And so is the numeracy cur curriculum. So is the science. So is the PE. So is the food systems. Yeah. So design of the day, right? And we build out, right, with a new foundation. And the, the metaphor that I've used to kind of articulate this is, you know, I'm, I'm in these rooms with, you know, thousands of teachers and school leaders. And I ask them, you know, how many of you own a home? And depending on the state I'm in, the numbers of hands that go up are very different. Right. But, you know, so inevitably some folks raise their hand. And I said, okay, well, when you bought your house, what was the first thing you had inspected? And, you know, to a person, they all say the foundation. Right. And I say, okay, well, why not the roof? Why not the HVAC system? Why not the state-of-the-art kitchen? Why not the hardwood floors? And of course, you know, they say, because if all of those things are new, but the foundation's bad, you're just throwing good money after bad. It's all coming in on itself anyway. Yeah. Well, that's happening in schools. Like all of these innovations that we're coming up with, ignore the research. The research is crystal clear that if a child is not well, if they don't love themselves, if they don't have steady food, clothing, shelter, and safety. Yeah. And when I say safety, I don't just mean physical safety. I mean identity safety, right? Safe to look at themselves in the mirror and love themselves for the color of their skin, mm -hmm. the texture of their hair, the language they speak, the neighborhood they come from, who their ancestors are, right? right? Without that, everything we know in the neuroscience is clear. That child is never going to thrive in school. It's biologically impossible. If you put white children, I mean, go to the Appalachians. We have multi-generational white entrenched poverty that never gets talked about in this country. It, it's getting talked about now because of fentanyl. But those kids are struggling in school too. Right. Because when they look in the mirror, everything that's reflected back to them in their schools is not teaching them to love themselves for who they are. And that is a concoction for persistent and consistent failure in the aggregate. And sure, like we can identify exceptional individuals, right? Who pull themselves by, up by their bootstraps, but that's not a democracy. And it's certainly not a pluralistic multiracial democracy. So if that's really the agenda here, like if we're gonna live up to that as a nation, we have got to rip up the foundation of what it is that we're, we're committed to in those 13 years with our children. And the reason that I remain imminently hopeful that this is possible is because I stay around young people and teachers. Right. Right. And you can go to any school in the country 
and find a space, no matter how bad things are, you know, in their aggregate data, right? You can find a space where young people are thriving because the central project is their wellness and their well-being. I know absolutely it's possible. And the question I think we haven't unraveled, like we have really good research on what it looks like in an individual classroom. We have really good research on what it looks like in a program. What we don't have yet is good research and understanding about what it looks like across an entire institution. Tip to finish, edge to edge, top to bottom, right? What is What would it take for us to do that? And so the project that we're engaged in right now is to start to try to answer that question. And I think the mistake that schools make is they say, oh yeah, like what Jeff's saying is making total sense. It lines up with the research. And so let's start this district initiative. And of course that falls flat on its face consistently because that's not how systemic change works. What I wanna see us do is to have local communities start a lab school and liberate that school to really have autonomy over what the community needs from it and partner with research to really study and understand what does it take? What would it take for us to repurpose a school and then share that you're a lab school? So by definition, you are open to other spaces in the community coming to learn your lessons so that each time we go on to phase two and we pick up, you know, two more schools to make this transformation, that they're not hitting the same tripwires that the first school hit. And I think that that kind of innovation, you know, I'm in Oakland, so I'm a stone's throw from Silicon Valley. You know, I've spent a lot of time with, you know, Meta, formerly Facebook, Google, with their leadership talking about equity. And one thing that has struck me, as problematic as Silicon Valley is, one thing that has struck me in every conversation I've had with their leadership is that they say that failure is one of the most prized commodities. Mm -hmm. And schools are allergic to failure. They, they sweep, they hide it. Yeah. Right? And I think part of the reason is because Silicon Valley knows that if we study our failure, then it leads us to success. Yeah. But in order to do that, you need an R&D budget, right? You need to actually invest in a structure that lets you study right? yeah. your failure. And schools don't have those resources. Right. And oh, there's, they're disincentivized. Yeah, they're still held accountable for the existing metrics and the existing system where what you're describing is really more of a letting go and an exploration of something different. It is interesting when you mentioned Silicon Valley as well, because on the enterprise side, you know, I wind up talking to a lot of people who are trying to think about building learning cultures and how are they educating their workforce. I think there's a lot of better insights on how to make that work in those cultures. How do you actually embrace failure? You know, the famous Nelson Mandela quote, I never lose, I either win or learn. You know, the learning opportunity is really when you fail. The other element to this is the letting go of a one-size-fits-all 
sensibility, you know, the idea of differentiated instruction, which is something you reference really throughout your book, is frequently just applied in the existing system around maybe academic performance, if it's applied at all. It's not necessarily connected to the unwellness epidemic that is out there. And the fact that a lot of students who are in a school that they don't feel a sense of belonging to, they don't feel connected to, they're expected to adapt, assimilate, accept what is provided there. Those are the students who were losing, the wounded ones that that you're talking about. I'd like to get to at least a little bit of your three R's, which I thought there was a lot to chew on in there, even separate from the idea that there's some foundational shifts that need to happen and there's some reimagining of how we measure success and how we design our schools, there's still more at the individual educator level, at the individual adult level. How do you build those relationships? How do you make sure there's relevance to the conversation? And how do you have some sense of responsibility? Yeah. If you've talked for a day, you know that at the end of the day, it always, always, always boils down to relationships. You know, I really bang that drum with teachers that your curriculum will not save you. And if you have a, a whack, I think I used that term in the- You did. I appreciated that. Yes. Yeah, Thank I, you for that. Yeah, if you have a whack curriculum, but you have good relationships, kids will tolerate you while you get yourself together, right? If you have a stellar curriculum, but you don't have good relationships, kids will blow it up. Yeah. But so much of school was really focused on the technocratic elements, right? The institutionalization of learning, right? Yeah. And teacher-student relationship. And again, like those kinds of institutional relationships are, they're antithetical to wellness, right? Because in a framework where wellness is the focus, when a child is wounded and that woundedness is emerging, that's the lesson plan. Yeah. Like you don't just keep banging on, you know, the spelling test because the children are communicating to you. That's not the lesson we need right now. Right. And we're not going to learn to spell anyway when there's that much pain in the room. And so I think that there is such a deep body of research out there on relationships and why they matter so much, particularly in, in more intimate types of interactions like teaching and learning. Yeah. And unfortunately, schools of education and schools generally have not really tapped into massive breakthroughs that have happened in neuroscience. Like we understand at a level about what's going on neurobiologically and physiologically inside of children's bodies in a way that 20 years ago we were, yeah. I did a keynote with this really well-known neuroscientist in New Zealand. We were the two keynotes for all of their middle school educators and we were in the green room and he was saying to me, he said, you know, there's only one field that's had more breakthroughs than us, the neuroscience in the last 20 years. And I was like, oh yeah, what's that? And then he held up his phone, right? And he said, think about this 20 years ago. Right. That's the level of growth we've seen in neuroscience. And of all the fields, like neuroscience seems like that might be one that education might really want to be up on, right? Yeah, right. 
And it's so, what's frustrating for me, you know, one of my, one of my students come colleague, her name's Tiffany Marie. She said to me once, I actually interview her in the book. And, you know, she said, you know, what's frustrating for me is that the things that our elders, you know, our, our grandmothers and our ancestors have been saying that we need, suddenly Western science is confirming it and affirming it. And so now it's true, right? And I'm kind of the same ill. Like my abuelita knew when I walked through the door after school, if I was well or not. Yeah. And she, she knew, like, is this a day I tell him to go do his homework or is this a day I put him in my arms, mm -hmm. right? And that relationship created a relationship where she could push, challenge, and cajole me because I knew that she cared about me and I knew she would never privilege yeah. my homework over my heart. And so what I tell teachers is that what the research bears out is probably well aligned with your instinct, which is that if a child is locking you out of their head, then stop banging on their head. Mm -hmm. You have to win the heart to win the head. And, you know, another person that I talk a lot about in the book is one of my teachers. His name is Maestro Jerry Dale. He's the founder of the National Compadres Network. And one of the things that he says that I think is, is really foundationally true about relationships is that wounded children speak the most truth hmm. and we resent them for it hmm. because the wounded child isn't varnishing it anymore, yeah. right? They've been sending messages that have been getting ignored. Hmm. So now they're lighting off sticks of dynamite and we're seeing this over it. Like, why are all these young people going back to school to do the shootings? Why school, mm. right? There's so much there for us to understand that there's something toxic going on in these places. And the wounded ones are, they're not hiding that from us anymore, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we need to be honest about the fact that we have not designed schools in a way that really supports the kind of nurturing and caring relationships that young people need in order to really thrive socially or intellectually. And it doesn't have to be that way. We have phenomenal research, not just on how to create environments that create deep and connected relationships, but we also have amazing research on how to create those kind of environments for the wounded ones so that they don't have to light up the dynamite anymore. Yeah. And, you know, if we get those kinds of relationships, then the next logical question is now we know why we're teaching, right? We're teaching to develop these deep, committed, connected relationships. Then we move to the relevance question right? Which is what are we using? What is the curriculum? What is the pedagogy? What is the assessment we're using to develop and nurture and grow and protect and sustain those kinds of relationships with young people? Yeah. Well, luckily enough, we have a deep body of research about how to do that. And as I said earlier, 
there's lots of examples of teachers that are modifying their curriculum, fundamentally transforming their curriculum to reflect the needs of the students they're serving. But I think what happens often is that we get, the field gets lazy again, because we don't have the time and the R&D research opportunities. And so what happens is that you've got District X that's like, hey, you know, our Latino students are really struggling, you know, in, in Compton. And I heard about this school in San Antonio, Texas, that's doing really well with Latino students. And so they carbon copy, they bring it to Compton. Of course, it doesn't work. Right. And again, this is an extension of kind of the the white supremacist concept about race, racial groups, right? That we're all the same. And, you know, if it worked for Latinos in San Antonio, why wouldn't it work for Latinos in South Central LA? Not understanding that community, right? Shapes culture, right? And that you can't essentialize race in that way, right? Does race influence culture? Of course it does, right? But there's so many different elements that go into making, and I think that's why culturally responsive education hasn't produced the kind of changes we want to see for, for wounded and marginalized kids, not because the theory's wrong, it's because the practice is wrong. And we've taken this and we're, everybody's looking for the silver bullet. And I think that there's this urgency, right? Like we got to do better with this group of kids. And in, in an effort to achieve that, what I see happen in schools a lot is an effort to sanitize the reality yeah. of the material conditions and the situation. And the shift that needs to happen to really have a relevant curriculum is to understand that the meaning is in the mess. Mm. And that if you try to dodge the mess, you'll miss the meaning. Mm. And so the shift that I really push for in the book that again, I did a lot of work with Allison around this, and you see it in the actually the subtitle in the book is pushing the conversation from culturally responsive or culturally sustaining to a conversation about community responsive. Because I think you can go to San Antonio and learn a lot about why that practice is working for Latino kids, but then you have to ground truth it for your community, right? You have to be asking the questions, what does this mean for Latino youth in Compton? How do we need to make the meaning there? And that's what it means for curriculum to be relevant. Yeah. And the other thing to know is, you know, with all this pushback around CRT and ethnic studies, it's, there's a fundamental ignorance there, right? Like, like the critique is coming from a place of people who haven't even put in the work. Like they don't even know what CRT is. They don't even yeah. know what ethnic studies is. Right. And the research again is crystal clear. There is a very clear research understanding about why a relevant curriculum changes engagement and outcomes for young people, all young people. And it's directly connected to what we know from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's pinnacle is self-actualization. Right. And the tier just before self-actualization is self-esteem. And if you do not see yourself, if you do not see your family, if you do not see your neighborhood, if you do not see your parents, if you do not see your ancestors in the things that you're reading and studying, cannot help but be facing over time. Yeah. 
it cannot help but put you in a position to really question your own value, right? And so we know that when kids have a sense of love and belonging, it leads to them having a greater sense of self-esteem. And when they have a greater sense of self-love, then they self-actualize. Right. The self-actualizing student is the student that tends to do the best in school. And then the related thing that I saw in your, that I learned from your book is how Maslow got a lot of his ideas from the Blackfoot tribe who saw that self-actualization not as an individualistic endeavor, but as actually a way to reconnect to the community that you're talking about. I'm not just self-actualizing for my own benefit. It's ultimately in service of something. And in fact, if my self-actualization is not in service of my community and it's not grounded in that, in some ways it's not as meaningful. It's not as connected. Clearly we could go on and on. Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade is a professor at the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State. He's also one of the founders of a school in Oakland that is really living what he's talking about in the book. We're getting close to time. Clearly there's a lot of insights in the book. The name of the book is Equality or Equity toward a Model of Community Responsive Education. It's what we've been talking about today. If you liked what you hear, definitely check out the book. We'll include links to it in the show notes. We're reaching our conclusion for today's conversation. Jeff, you've hit on a lot of what was in the book, but as our listeners are heading back to the rest of their lives, do you have any concluding thoughts, any ways to kind of sum up what we've been talking about today? I would just end with words of encouragement, you know, to say that we've made a lot of investments as a nation to get us into this spot. And if we're going to get out of this spot and really live up to the highfalutin rhetoric of our ideals, it's going to be a long journey. And so I just encourage, you know, educators, families, you know, community folks to dig where you stand. This is not going to be some sweeping, you know, federal initiative that changes everything. It's going to really be the labor and the commitment of communities to say that we want something different for our children. We want something different for our communities and to reclaim the project of public education as a truly public project and to continually focus on not our individual child, right? But really paying attention to what would it mean for my child's classroom, my child's school, to be a place where the most vulnerable and wounded children in my community are going to thrive and trust and believe that if we create those kind of schools, all our children are going to thrive. So I really encourage folks to know that it's possible. It's happening every day. And if we get ourselves together collectively to make this commitment in our communities, we can accelerate those kind of changes and those changes matter for our children, for our families, for our communities, and for our future. Amazing stuff with Jeff Duncan Andrade, who's written the book, Equality or Equity, definitely something worth checking out. Hopefully our listeners got as much out of this as I did. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard, please write a review. 
Subscribe, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.